0: to the web 3 Prof podcast good morning and good afternoon everybody i'm here with anaki gomez who's associate at border ladner gervais i also have double sharma with me who is the senior director um, of institutional legal at coinbase thanks for being with me here today guys thanks for having us um so i'd like to maybe just start off with hearing your guys's background as to how you got into maybe both law and then specifically into legal practice around crypto or Web3. Yaki, maybe we'll start with you first.
1: Um, I mean, law, you know, when you go to UBC and do international relations and poli-sci, and then you kind of scratch your head and figure out, what else am I going to do? Like, I'm what are you going to do for a job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I pursued a law degree and, you know, was lucky enough to get hired by BLG. And thereafter, in terms of getting into crypto, it's probably more of a happenstance. like at the right time the right place uh you know i was telling you before i was asked to take a look at bitcoin whether it was a security or not and write a memo on it and you know it was for a particular file at the time and you know no one had really drafted or written anything about this and you know before we know we're sort of helping a client get registered and launch the first bitcoin trust fund in canada when was this this was back in Late 2016 into early 2017. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, as soon as you are the one associate or junior that's kind of gotten involved, anytime a file started coming in, you're like, okay, you're familiar enough with this stuff. Can you uh, run with it? And, you know, that led to transactions, whether it's reverse takeovers of companies going public or more firms wanting to get registered and help, you know, clients either invest in crypto assets or create platforms such, such as like the big trading platforms that we see in Canada now so you know what is it now six seven years down the road and I'm one of the few associates that uh, have joined the group and BLG has an extensive group of lawyers that have you know a depth of experience in understanding derivatives and and securities and so as, as soon as these issues came into the fold well BLG was in a good place to sort of understand and help clients push these things along with the regulators.
0: Were you interested in technology before then? Or was this just kind of like, by chance, you happen to be in the right place in the law firm and, and you got kind of plugged into this?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I like to say most young people kind of have a general sass for uh, technology, but I, I think for me, I was not particularly interested in traditional kind of business world in Vancouver, which is mining and, you know, finance. So. When technology opportunities came, whether it was like private equity investments and, and more tech oriented businesses, that was my calling. So I always put my hand up for those types of files. It, again, I think the happenstance was 2016, 2017, crypto was starting to come up and, and and more on the mainstream. Obviously, I'd been around for many years before that. But in terms of seeking understanding of the regulatory environment, I think that's when it kicked up and I happened to be there. You're a true OG. Yeah. It's-
0: Uh, Dovil, you've been
1: uh, on the podcast
2: before, but maybe we'll go back.
0: How did you get into crypto once you started studying uh, studying law?
2: Yeah, and and it's funny hearing you and Naki talk about it because I feel like it's it's a different world and in house on the on the on the company side and not at a law firm. But um, I think basically by dint of not saying no, um, you end up doing it. So I I was um, in government service for a while. Um, and i'm an american lawyer so i was in washington dc and i was working at the u.s securities and exchange commission i worked from there um, at the new york attorney general's office up in new york city um, all kind of in the financial sector doing um, investigations and and litigations related to financial companies and potential securities fraud violations Um, i jumped from there to goldman sachs i was at goldman sachs in in a group that responded to regulatory inquiries so kind of on the other side And I loved my job. I thought I was going to do it for a long, long time. And then out of nowhere, uh, a high school classmate of mine told me he was starting a company called Tagomi, and he wanted me to join as a first employee and as as a general counsel. And I thought, you know, a year from now, if I didn't take that opportunity, I would look back as I sat in a row of lawyers at Goldman Sachs wishing I had taken it. Um, And at the time, I didn't know what Bitcoin was. I didn't know what crypto was. And this is the fall of 2017 um i did some research i looked into it and it, it felt to me like this was the dawn of a new technology blossoming right in front of my eyes and i thought you know if this fails it'll still be a good opportunity so i jumped in i joined to which was an institutional brokerage um, relatively small client base looking to help institutional clients buy large amounts of crypto uh, buy and sell that company got acquired by coinbase in 2020 and so i, I moved over to coinbase as a part of that acquisition and i've been at coinbase now for over three years and so I've, I've been in crypto similarly it'll be six years in march um and um I've, you know my, my practices span the, the gamut uh from institutional to retail but i largely focus on institutional uh crypto now and and, and for me similar to you and yaki i mean the, the intersection of law and technology is always fascinating I, I i would hesitate to say well it could be any law and technology intersection like i think the unique crypto um, uh, legal issues that we face are just so uh, interesting and I feel like we're trailblazing both in Canada and America we're, we're trailbla- trailblazing new ground here
0: that's, that's amazing uh, it's interesting because it was the fall of 2017 when I also got into crypto my first purchases of Bitcoin ethereum and Litecoin at that time on coinbase actually um, and uh, I even a f- uh, uh, maybe a year or two ago I went back and looked at my purchasing records to see when when did I get into this and and it was it's kind of interesting to look at it because that was of course kind of probably the tail end of a bull run at that time, which was super exciting. And then, and then all the whole world fell apart after that for a couple of years. (laughs) Um, So now both of you being, uh, Inyaki, a Canadian lawyer and, um, double an American lawyer, we're going to talk about what are the differences that we see between our two countries. So, um, Inyaki, maybe if you can lay out kind of a general landscape of what is crypto regulation look like here in Canada?
1: Yeah. I mean, Canadian regulators have taken kind of a unique stance as particularly as compared to the US they've they they have taken a much more proactive approach in engaging sort of the industry and then applying sort of the existing regulatory scheme when it comes to dealing with securities dealers and and advisors uh, and you know in a kind of patch up patch up work in a way like try to apply it but it's it's kind of work with some you know kinks and and, and issues along the way but essentially back in about 2020 they issued a uh, what the security canadian securities administrators issued a staff notice which essentially set out specific um expectations with um the the um, what would be caught by securities laws and so the they created this notion or concept be being uh, a crypto contract and so it, it all stems from the 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 arrangement of whether there is immediate delivery of a crypto asset between the person selling it and and the retail individual that is purchasing it Um, and and you know through that staff notice it sort of goes through the analysis that you know the canadian regulators are going to apply the the pacific coin test which is the equivalent to the Howey test in the united states Mm -hmm. and and it's just whether there's an investment contract now crypto contract is an investment like the, the the notion is being that there's a crypto contract when there's a, you know, an expectation that you will receive a crypto asset after, um, you know, you, you put a, a purchase with, uh, say, um, Bitbuy, bit for example. They are going to hold your asset uh, and then at a future time you can redeem it in a way. But there's that, that, that arrangement where they're holding it on your behalf that creates the crypto contract, therefore that creates a security. And then that captures the whole notion that they're in the business of trading in securities. So that essentially created the foundation for how the regulators could put their teeth into the industry in Canada. And thereafter, they started digging more into the issues around custody, the issues around capital, the issues around like KYC and suitability and all the the various things that the platforms themselves have to either navigate or work around with existing rules in Canada. Ha- has um,
0: the environment in Canada regarding crypto become more favorable to the investor over the last couple of years or last few years or has it become more difficult for the crypto
1: buyer um I think depends how you see it right I think before when it was sort of deregulated and people could freely go around and choose their you know whatever platform they had a much more tr- a freer choice to go to you know binance or some of the bigger platforms. Uh, but as soon as you create a regulatory scheme that all these uh, industry players have to comply with, there's a lot more requirements that an, a retail investor has to follow in order to be able to actually purchase the crypto asset. So, individuals might find it frustrating that they're being asked a gazillion questions just to even open an account on, you know, Bitbuy or Coin, uh, Coinberry or Coin, CoinSquare. So again it's just what you would typically see with any other order execution only platform but in in now that the regulars see this is the expectation because we actually want to protect you so you don't have a situation like ftx where you know Funds, where are they going? What's happening to your crypto assets? At least we can create a, a, a level playing field for all participants to ensure that they're complying with the expected regulatory environment.
0: Okay, in- interesting. So, Double, um, I guess we'll, we'll ask the same question to you. So, what's the landscape like in the United States? And I think we need to almost set the, set the, the playing field in the sense like it seems like it might change any day yeah Uh, you know and so maybe what you say now (laughs) tomorrow might not be the case because and and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like we're in a place where like things are shifting uh right now
2: yeah yeah no without a doubt so um i i think like canada the u.s has a federal and state i mean instead of provincial federal and state divide in a lot of a lot of areas of law and historically over the last you know i want to say 10 years or so the crypto regulation in the u.s has been a state by state matter And it's been a bit of a square peg round hole situation. I'll come back to why. Um, But it's worked well enough, but it's not working perfectly. And what what the crypto community really wants um, in the United States. and I'm I'm speaking largely for companies like Coinbase and the bigger players that can adapt to adapt to this. What what we really want, I think, is federal regulation. Today, crypto companies are not regulated the same way as Apple or Google or or companies that are regulated by the SEC. we are sorry, Goldman Sachs or, um, or, or JP Morgan. Uh, w- we are regulated on a state-by-state basis. Some states have pretty pretty good frameworks, like the New York Department of Financial Services, um, which regulates virtual currency businesses in New York, has a pretty good framework. And the, the hurdles to be regulated in New York are relatively high. Um, and it, it, it's overall seen as a, a positive value add to prevent things like what we saw with FTX. A lot of other states have what we call money transmission license laws. And this is intended for the Western unions of the world to be able to take your money and be trusted with it. So you need a license. I'm going to move it from one person to another. It doesn't really apply to crypto. And, and it's been a bit of a square peg round hole, as I said. But we've, it's what we've had to do. Coinbase, for example, has 45 money transmission license uh, licenses across the United States it it tends to be uniform but it's a bit Balkanized and it, it's a it's a compliance burden to have to apply to all these states.
0: Does that mean that you have 5 states that you're not active in if you only have 45 licenses?
2: Some, some some that's a great question. So some states have decided that their money transmission laws don't actually apply to crypto. Actually for a long time one of those states was California. California recently though adopted a new bill that provides for a regulatory framework that makes it look a lot like New York. So they're kind of coming into the into the playing field for a crypto state-by-state regulation, all of these all of these licenses um, allow us to operate in assets that are not securities, and that's that's one of the key things, right? So when we talk about Brit- Bitcoin, Litecoin, those other assets you purchased in, in 2017, those were under Coinbase's uh, money transmission licenses, and the idea is that none of those assets are securities. And as you all know, and as probably as many of the listeners know, that's a position we stand. Firmly by that, none of the assets that we have listed on our platform—some 244 assets—none of those are securities. If any of them are securities, we would not list them, and we'd have to go through a different route. So, when, when you talk about you know things might change any minute now um, in the U.S., there there are things being uh, worked in Congress to try to get some federal clarity uh, through the House and through the Senate. We could talk about that. Um, there's a lawsuit, um, SEC versus Coinbase, um, where they're accusing us of listing assets that are securities um you know again we, we disagree with that and from our, our position is we need federal re- regulation but it's it's not what we have today because again none of the assets are securities so we need something else and that's what we need Congress to help us figure out and just looking globally we a, a lot of jurisdictions are figuring this out I mean we have in Europe a unified approach with uh with Mika which is the uh, markets and crypto assets it, it, it's it's a so we have in Europe uh, mika markets and crypto assets which provides for a eu-wide crypto framework right and canada you have you have a federal um uh system in place or our federal
1: provincially or administered but again in in canada the provinces work together
2: so it does create a natural a national framework a, na- a national a national framework then and, and that's the right term right and and so you you take the concept of a security and and you 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 adapt crypto to that in a way that the United States just not, doesn't seem willing to do. And this is what the SEC. And I think there is just a institutional um, unwillingness to work with crypto players to try to make this right.
1: I, I would say, like, I think one of the unique differences in the way Canada sort of jumped into it versus in the United States, you you, you reference the sort of money services business. Because in Canada, many of the trading platforms that we know and, and hear about in Canada quickly to seek sort of some formal rubber stamping of that they were regulated in some form, they they sought to get MSB registration through Fintrack because they were obviously taking people's monies and and transacting it, and so in order to say that they were complying with some kind of KYC requirements, they were taking that step. Now, whether that's the right registration in Canada, you know, that's kind of been discussed as part of the now the regu- securities regulators being like. This is actually we're dealing in the in the business of securities that that is separate and apart. And you might not actually require that, but that's a different analysis that needs to happen over time. But I find that in, you know, in comparing it to the US, it almost seems like the SEC has not really taken the steps to and any even in this in every state of state, apply a securities lens to the regulation of crypto asset platforms and other brokers and dealers that deal in this space. So that's probably one of the key things. Canada, despite the MSB registration, the securities regulators quickly said, this still falls within our mandate. We'll make it fall within, and then we'll apply and figure out the model. And it's been developing over time. It, it
0: seems like recently we've had lots of centralized exchanges leaving Canada or committing to Canada. Um, so I've got maybe two questions on that. Are there... Um, Uh, Is there a difference between what the Ontario Securities Commission requires and what the rest of the country does? Because one thing we know in Canada is that is kind of the center of our universe, or that's at least what people in Ontario believe uh, to be true. And, And also what's happening with the crypto exchanges? Why do we see a bunch of them leaving and a bunch of them saying, okay, we're committed to Canada?
1: Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear from a player that's like looking to enter the market, but I think, you know... If you are looking to access the biggest market in Canada, it is Ontario. So you inevitably have to deal with the OSC, even if your principal regulator is BC. Um, the way that the the regulatory sandbox, which is a specific group that looks at dealing with sort of novel businesses, um, you end up engaging with all the regulators because they all want to understand the technology, the the, the substantive issues behind the technology and, and sort of the custody piece that I, you know we've referenced a number of times here. Um, so the OSC is, you know, has their hand very much involved now. Whether that has led to certain platforms leaving or exiting Canada, I don't quite think that's the case. I think it's also the reality that Canada is not a huge jurisdiction, right? Like, thirty-four million people or thirty-six now, but who, how many of those actually invest in crypto assets and through regulated crypto assets? That's yeah. the other question. Yeah. So the the cost and time in actually complying with the requirements might not fit for every platform so we've seen obviously some big players leave because maybe they just
2: assessed that it was not it was not worth it
1: yeah uh Del, do you have a sense on
0: coinbase's position on on canada
2: yeah i mean i i think um a lot of what i'm hearing is right it's a regulated market so if you want to invest in it you have to do it right and you have to provide for legal and compliance resources to make it work appropriately so Coinbase has, I mean, we're a big company. We have the resources to do that. And so we are, we are committing to it. We have a we have a country head. His name is Lucas Mathis, and he's great. And he used to be at Shopify. And so he's he's helping us put the Coinbase banner in Canadian soil. Our principal regulator, I believe, is in Quebec, uh, the AMF. But we also deal regularly with the OSC. Um, and just providing an impression, and, and this is my own opinion, the AMF and the OSC, they are very sophisticated when it comes to understanding crypto rules regulations and how the market actually works um they understand cryptocurrency as a technology in a way that is hard to imagine in the united states and so for my colleagues who cover canadian law and who cover canadian issues they've been very impressed by the regulators um overall they've, they've they they and they understand that if something is a security here there here's a framework that we have and by contrast in the us um if it's a security you kind of hit a dead end right um so I think with all that in mind, we, we are looking more outwardly. I think today a large part of our client base is in the United States. like Some 80, 90% of our client base is American, um, is, is US-based. Um, I think we'd like to diversify that. And for us, you know, Canada, you know, the 35, 40 million population might seem small. I mean, I think in the minds of companies like Coinbase, like that's the size of California. It's a big market. And it's a market that I think seems ripe for uh, innovation and ripe for crypto to kind of take the mainstream.
1: I mean, and, and maybe some of these platforms see the, the benefit of having a regulatory environment that is stable, trustworthy. And so, you know, I, I'm with you and I, I do want to sort of echo, like I do find the regulators in Canada have taken the time to understand, learn and actually listen to the to the market participants to understand the technology. Like I would say, including the BCSC and Alberta, Ontario, there are. Now, specific analysts that know and understand crypto assets, they've created groups that focus on staking, on custody matters. So so these issued guidances that they've been published are with both industry and, you know, deep knowledge from the the regulator's perspective.
0: It's interesting because I have had this similar conversation about um, securities in Canada and every single person that I've talked to on this podcast about it has said the same thing. They're impressed with how they operate. They're pretty sophisticated. They kind of know what they're talking about, and they've done a pretty good job of getting their handle on this, um, which obviously, double as you said, is a bit different than maybe what we see in the United States today. So that's encouraging for us as Canadians, eh? Um, So one thing we see is the classification of cryptocurrencies um, between securities or commodities. So what's the American approach here, and what's the impact as to whether something gets categorized um, as a security versus a commodity? And then we'll go to you, and talk about the Canadian approach.
2: Yeah, so at baseline, the view is these assets are commodities. As commodities, you have to go through the state-by-state money transmission license regulation that that I was mentioning earlier. Um, Commodities also are regulated by the CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Commission. Um, They mostly regulate derivatives on commodities and so not pure commodities themselves, although they have some jurisdiction over commodities if there's fraud in the underlying commodity market. So um, they might not regulate like a future contract based on the price of wheat, but they would regulate fraud uh, so sorry, they they would regulate the future contract based on the price of wheat, and they wouldn't regulate the underlying wheat market. But if there was fraud in the wheat market, that was potentially done to in, impact the futures pricing. D- and, d- does somebody regulate like the wheat market or the gold market? Uh, no, that would that would largely be unregulated. Um, okay. it's it's a commodity and it, it trades, and, yeah. and and there's not a federal regulator that that, that oversees that. Um, crypto is a little bit different because, because again, there's the state by state rules. Um, so that that's the general the general field if it's a commodity you're looking at the state by state regulation with some you know fraud oversight by the cftc if it's a security you're firmly within the sec land the problem with that as we've kind of mentioned a little bit is that there's no regulatory clarity about what to do with crypto assets that are securities there's no way to uh, to register them there's no way to trade them on a stock exchange none of that framework that you see in canada that that has not been adapted to crypto and so when I mentioned earlier that there's a dead end, there very much is a dead end. Now, I wanna maybe clarify and give some credit to the American uh, regulatory scene here, because w- what I will say is in my interactions with the staff at these various regulators, um, especially the SEC, they're, they're, they're pretty well equipped to understand these issues. And, and they, they take a lot of time um, and patience to understand this new market. And I think they're trying, And they get the issues and they're working with the industry including with players like coinbase to to grapple with the tough legal questions about how to adapt this new technology to the existing laws Um, i think what you see instead though um at the at the official chairman level and and from the official positions of the of the sec is enforcement led positions uh, where the staff um, that's charged with enforcing the crypto rules are often just suing players in the, in the space, and so the U.S. scene. When you talk about you know where, where what a classification is, it is a commodity, is it a security. The view from the SEC, from their enforcement division, is that a lot of these assets are securities. There the is vehement disagreement from the crypto community, and we're starting to see uh, the legal cases and the case law develop in, in the United States. And the SEC is not always right here. And you know, one of the most prominent cases was XRP. Uh, Judge Torres in the Southern District of New York, which is a federal district court, said that the SEC was wrong um, and that XRP, the investment contract uh, analysis, doesn't apply. It's not It's not a security. And um, there are cases where it might be a security, but that asset's not a security. And so we're starting to see cracks, I would say, in, in their overall thesis. Are there some
0: cryptocurrencies that have absolutely been determined to be securities? Or is it still in this kind of gray area?
2: Uh there i'm I'm struggling to remember uh where the case law actually falls i mean there certainly are assets where um players have gone in and said we want to register this asset as a particular type of offering where mm-hmm. there there might be a, a narrow path to registration yeah um those markets tend to be illiquid and you can't trade them as as um as easily as you can trade bitcoin in a place like coinbase um and you know I, and i guess there there are some there are some um Actually, I'll, I'll stop there. We'll edit this part out. But I, I I, think the answer is no, for the most part. Okay.
1: And um, yeah, go ahead.
2: Well, I would say I, I do
1: want to clarify in Canada, the regulators will only allow these crypto trading platforms to trade assets that are not securities and or derivatives. So, so the, unlike or similar to the US, the, the reality is that the regulars expect the industry to make the assessment of whether something is a security and or derivative. So if it is. They're not supposed to list it and make it available to clients. So that's sort of the onus is on the industry to make that determination. The, the regulators like in the US, other than in the, the cases that have been filed as against um, Ripple and, and Coinbase, they haven't really provided an analysis on any of the assets. I mean, I know there, in those two cases, there were about 17 coins. Yep. But other than that, like there's really no guidance from regulators in Canada or in the US as, as to whether they think Solana is a security or not, right? It's really on the, on the participants to determine that. They have kind of given a general sense that Bitcoin, ether, Litecoin, cash, uh, Litecoin and, and Bitcoin cash are sort of more established, highly decentralized coin, uh, crypto assets and therefore a more like, like uh, commodity. Um, so in Canada, we, we, you know, working with clients, we have to make those assessments, we have to research and, and almost test it against the, the, the Pacific coin test to figure out whether we feel comfortable enough that this may or may not be a security and or a derivative. Because in Canada, the definition of a security is a lot broader than in the U.S. and can catch a derivative. So that is key because in Canada, and this is more of a recent development, the regulars have actually come out and given an opinion that... Um, or expressed an assessment, because there's not quite an opinion that a, a stable coin which they now have termed a verca or a, a VRCA. Uh, value, what does that stand for? Value Reference Crypto Asset. Okay. They call them verkas. Um and, and it's really just the, their view is changing the definition to really create an, ex, an understanding that any asset that is sort of pegged or stabilized by some other underlying asset, in the case of a you know, currency or otherwise, is a derivative and so vercas in canada are viewed as a derivative and therefore should not be listed on the exchange or platform
0: well then but so you're not supposed to have stable coins
1: on exchanges anymore so so that's sort of the 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 regulatory development that's happened right so now that this has come out so the, the the regulators earlier in june issued a um um another guidance a staff notice where they they said um in order for you to be able to list a verka or a stable coin on your platform you need to get consent from the regulators because it is determined to be a, a derivative uh-huh. now they've more recently as as of uh, i think it was in october they came out with a new staff notice where in order for you to uh, a platform to be able to issue or make available a verka on the platform for various reasons, right? Verkas are used for, let's use stablecoins, it's more of a colloquial term. <laughs> but t- stablecoins are used for a number of reasons, right? You know, retail retail investors use it for on-ramp or off-ramp, right? It's much easier to convert to uh, USDC or USDT because then you keep it in crypto assets and don't have to get it into cash and then move it to a bank, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a benefit from a transactional basis and, and, and platforms have t- taken that position that... It's not particularly because people invest in it, it's because people actually utilize that asset. Um, but so the, the Canadian regulators have come out uh, with this new staff notice that says you can, and you if, if you if you want to be able to offer these crypto assets on your platform that are derivatives, then you need to um, agree to the specific terms and conditions that are going to be applied to the registration. But in addition to that, the regulators have gone a step further and want any issuer of a, of, a, of a stable coin, whether it's Tether or, you know, Circle, who's behind USDC or any other or, you know, whoever is actually offering these, these crypto assets to enter into an undertaking. And so the regulars have made a very clear uh, expectation what these issuers have to comply with, because for the same reason, if it is a security or a derivative, it should have been issued pursuant to a prospectus or an exemption from that prospectus and if it hasn't been done then it's not in compliance with security laws in Canada. So the expectation is that they want to see these issuers comply at least to these terms and conditions which would include you know public disclosure on their financial statements to ensure that the the the, the assets underlying those stable coins do in fact exist and there's not a you know potential loss of you know not being able to redeem those crypto assets. Anyway, long story short is to say the assessment the regulators have never really opined on whether something is a security or derivative until now and now it's creating a bit of a further disruption into the players in canada because it's like okay well this is a significant asset that is used for various reasons how are we going to navigate this
2: it's a disruption but you know what i would say is that it provides clarity right at least you know now that there are certain hurdles to achieve to enter into this market and there's some negotiation and agreements you have to you have to do as a part of these undertakings but in the u.s there is a stable coin bill that's um that's now out of committee that that may hit the floor of congress and uh maybe we'll see something similar in the united states with certain disclosure requirements or certain reserve requirements with respect to stable coins we're not there yet and you know the u.s congress is going through a lot of issues at the moment uh, <laughs> and, and and we only recently uh selected a Speaker of the House. So it, it's unclear whether whether the US will catch up to Canada. But I think the message when I hear you say this is that the US is behind. I mean, C- Canada's already there providing this clarity. And again, it's a high hurdle, but at least it's clarity. And from my position, working with institutional clients, that's what they need to jump into this space. They're not gonna jump into a space where the law is tentative and might change at any minute. They wanna jump into spaces where there is a clear path forward for their investments to actually grow in value or for them to put product resources behind building something around a verka or stablecoin, and canada's providing that
0: that's interesting what do you guys say to the like the bitcoin maximalist who is a libertarian or maybe even anar- an anarchist and who looks at kind of the whole vision of the space of we won't even use the term crypto because they probably don't even like that term. But, you know, the whole vision behind Bitcoin and and now we're kind of asserting continual regulation and restrictions on this, uh, this asset that the vision was really to get away from that type of stuff. What do you say to somebody like that?
2: It, it's a paradox, right? Because a company like Coinbase, one, one of our missions is to spread economic freedom around the world because we want people to own crypto assets and, you know, that that the whole thesis behind cryptocurrency is you take out the middleman. There are no intermediaries and yet we are an intermediary that are helping people achieve that non-intermediary intermediary goal. The whole thing's a paradox, right? <laughs> At the same time, you know, I, I think that um, Coinbase kinda has two tracks here. We we, we are um, you know dead set on getting it right in terms of being a central exchange and providing the right disclosures to customers and thinking about things in a in a customer friendly and customer forward way. Um, as our as our guiding principle, the idea being on the central on the central um, exchange path, we want to we want to help the adoption of crypto. And the more people that own crypto, the more the the, the goals of the Bitcoin Maximus will actually be achieved, right? Um, and I th- I'm going to get this figure wrong, but I think some 50 million people in America own crypto, which is more than people that own electric cars. So it's a pretty large wow. population in the United States. And I think Coinbase has played a big part. Of that story we also support a lot of projects that are decentralized and coinbase has done a lot to build towards decentralized applications um and helping the development of various blockchain projects and so and and we're and we're not um we're not looking at these things as diametrically opposed like they can work together you know you buy a stable coin and then you can use that stable coin to go work and adapt and, and 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 buy something on uniswap right like we are an entry point to this other world and for better or worse, you kind of need both to make the whole ecosystem grow.
0: Yeah.
1: What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Bitcoin maximists don't like the idea of regulators kind of coming into the play, but the, the, the concept of a, a centralized platform where people are going to use it for the purpose of investment, I mean, you know, as a regulatory lawyer, I understand the concept of wanting regulators to protect investors because we, unfortunately, we've been proven wrong of people taking advantage of these situations, mm-hmm. right? And so when it's unchecked, unregulated without guidance you know there's there's platforms that are doing what they can to make sure that they comply with whatever is available and then we see the examples like ftx which really just detract from any possible ground that was being made to (laughs) adopt right and and so for the maximus it's like okay i hear you but there needs to be a balance and i think hopefully we're getting there with some bruises along the way but it's coming along i think bruises is a
0: general a generous term, (laughs) more than a bruising, right? Um, So, what, uh, Inyaki, what is it like uh, in Canada when it comes to KYC and anti-money laundering uh, regulation? Is it it quite rigorous? Is it quite strict? Uh, What does that look like in our perspective here?
1: Well, so as I mentioned earlier, Canadian platforms took the position that they were money service, uh, money business services. And so they got registered with FinTrack. So obviously FinTrack, you know, there's virtual, and I'm, I should qualify. I'm not a AML lawyer. So I sort of generally know this in the context of how it applies to a securities dealer or now uh, a crypto trading platform. But the, the, The expectation is that they will comply with KYC requirements and dealing with large transactions and flagging those as is required by anyone else that is covered under AML law in Canada. Um, The what gets confusing is that securities regulations also requires KYC uh, questionnaires and understanding who the client that is investing in these assets are. And so it's a sort of a double-edged sword that you're going to be hit with questions from both ends, from an AML perspective, but also from a securities principle. So an investor is going to be, in theory, if you look at any decision for any crypto trading platform that is registered in Canada has a laundry list of things that they need to comply with. They call them account appropriateness factors, which Mm. would be like, who are you, your identity, um, your financial assets, just truly to understand that, A, this account that you're going to be investing in is actually appropriate for you. But we also Mm -hmm. want to know who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, the and I were talking about the the reality is it's 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 the system in place actually keeps a lot of it's transparent. And it's actually quite secure in many ways. And I I mean, you have more of a lens from from an in in house perspective. But yes, it is interesting because people worry about, uh, you know, being used for terrorist purposes or for funding things that you know shouldn't be funded, but yeah. there's an easy way to trace that.
2: Yeah, I mean, and two points here. For, first, I mean, the the same rules for anti-money laundering that apply to banks and broker-dealers apply to crypto. So Goldman Sachs follows the Bank Secrecy Act, so does Coinbase. You know, we, we are all registered with the Department of Treasury as money services business in the United States under the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, and we have to have the same level of K- KYC and, uh, and and ownership over the AML process. So, you know, it, it, does crypto um, comply with AML? Like, absolutely. It, it is it is something that's been the case for a decade. I mean, this is like one of the early things in crypto is that the the AML regulators recognized that this space was developing that it involved the, the movement of funds. And they said, let's let's make sure that it's very clear that our rules apply equally to this space way before any other regulators were thinking about this um but secondly you know yeah there's been a lot of misperception recently um and i think this is just a theme that we see in the united states a lot that you know crypto is used for terrorist fin- financing it's used to, to move money around in illicit ways and there was a controversy recently because of what's happening in the middle east um the wall street journal came out with a story saying that uh that that hamas was using crypto for for terrorist financing mm. And They pointed to a report from elliptic, which is one of a one of the premier uh, uh AML crypto firms elliptic re- later walked back their report okay. and, and The Wall Street Journal issued it somewhat of a retraction, walking back their story. nevertheless, you know the feathers were out of the back yeah, it's already out and, there <laughs> and so you know Elizabeth Warren and others in Congress were were pointing to this story and and saying this proves our point that this is a terrorist financing vehicle. The reality is is when you look at the numbers and 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 you can trace this stuff very easily um it, it is it is not a a safe haven for for terrorist financing or aml violations um in fact it's actually quite hard to do with crypto because it is quite traceable yeah and again you know going back to the point about the bitcoin maximalist i mean the original thesis of this is like anon- anonymized um transactions and you know the reality is is it's not it's not really that way and if you want to if you want to deal in um if you, if you want to violate aml laws you're probably better off with the old multiple briefcase of cash, and you are with transferring something on chain.
0: I interviewed um, a crypto investigator for the RCMP on the podcast, and and that was one of his points, was that the fact that um, everything is pseudo anonymous and publicly available on the blockchain, it's made their job Not straightforward, but there's a level of ease in tracking transactions because it's all available for the public to see. And so once they can learn wallet addresses and things like that, they have quick access to do investigations and press charges and and move on things like that, which is which is certainly not what you typically hear from people like Elizabeth Warren or voices like that who are saying, oh, this is used only for evil, right? Um, and so it's, it's good to, for us to always remember that perspective for sure, because it is an important, um, it's an important foundation of, of this industry. Uh, when we look at um, the future of regulation in our two countries regarding crypto, what do you think it looks like from uh, first a Canadian perspective, or maybe even what do you hope it looks like? What's your dream
1: <laughs> <laughs> um i mean i I think it's gonna take some time right like I think you know you you refer to the approach that the regulars have taken in terms of stable coins as as a positive clear uh line um i i i my fear is only that that will cause platforms, whether it's foreign platforms or even current ones in Canada to reassess their the the viability of their business if they can't do that. So my, my ideal would be like an, an ongoing engagement which we've seen throughout the process between regulators and industry to make sure that we continue to be nimble and adapt as things need to happen. Obviously if something is a security well, how do we find exceptions from the requirements to ensure that it does allow the platforms to work the way they are intended, as long as they're compliant? I'm all I mean, from me, from my perspective, I want to make sure um, things are being done clean, orderly, in compliance. Uh, you know, when we talk about Liz Warren, I mean I for me as as a lawyer, I hear her saying we just need regulation, whether she's more loud about it or not. The reality is we need clarity, we need compliance, and we need people to buy into it, right? I think people come into the industry from the Wild West almost, uh, whether they're Bitcoin maximists and also and they're being forced to, to, to comply, it, it could be a bit of a shock. I think down the road, maybe it's in two, three, five, ten 10 years, we have uh, sort of a more equal playing field and maybe it leads to consolidation as we've already started seeing in Canada. But, you know, hopefully we have a robust industry that can be applied elsewhere in the world
0: what's your american perspective on that
2: what's the american dream Uh, (laughs) always the question always the question i mean look i I think the unfortunate thing right now in the u.s is that crypto has become this bipartisan issue uh where it feels like we have more allies on the republican side than we do on the democratic side it's it's not black and white like that like there are a lot of prominent democrats who are very supportive of of the crypto community and, and advancements of technology. But but largely it's become this bipartisan issue. That's unfortunate because this is about customer protection and getting it right and, and and enabling innovation in the U.S. And so I'm hoping we'll get there. My my thought is that, you know, you have to to get legislation passed in the United States like it probably in many jurisdictions. Um, it is it is threading a needle through so many challenging situations and um landing that and getting it right the the percentage chance of that is is just relatively small in in reality right so in the the united states what what i think might happen is that this might be market led first where you start to see buy-in from bigger players you start to see more mainstream adoption and it's through those uh those adoption uh those adoptions through the consumer usage through institutional usage that people in congress start to wake up and realize that this is something that they should regulate because it's becoming more and more popular and again like the 50 million number of of americans who own it i think that's a helpful fact right as that number grows to 75 or 100 million or maybe even 200 million one day i think we'll, we'll have to see some sort of federal regulation here and that's ultimately what the dream is is that this is federally regulated that there's clarity and there's a legitimization of crypto companies like coinbase that we don't see quite at the federal level yet it seems like that
0: there's some kind of cultural implications to nearly everything in the United States from my perspective that becomes a bipartisan issue. It seems like so many things are on this side or on that side and and is that just the culture of current American politics? like why is crypto a conservative person's thing? Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah no it, it, it is perplexing and going back to, to foundational principles, right like this is an idea of 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 uh, the small man, uh, owning something on his own without having to go through an inter- intermediary like a big bank. Like, you would think that Democrats would be all over that, right. especially people like El- Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I think what's happened instead is that the way that crypto has developed in the United States, it's kind of this California techie, bro type thing. That's yeah. a perception. The, the reality is very different. I mean, the number of minorities and women who are who are who own crypto, who are involved with, with, uh, with companies that are, that are founders is actually quite large. Uh, but there's a perception that it, is, yeah. that it is no different than your Facebooks and, and this, is, um, this is something that we should try to work against rather than to work for. On top of it, we also have the AML concern that we talked about, right? So I think these two things combined have made it really a bipartisan issue instead of, um, a, a partisan issue instead of a bipartisan issue.
1: Excellent. It probably doesn't also help that you have two parties and that's literally you. <laughs> right. Have to, yeah. You have to, so everything like has to fall yeah. on like whatever this side says. You kind of stuck with that label. I mean, yeah. 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 Different topic for a different podcast. <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll, we'll do an uh, American versus Canadian politics episode. Yeah. Um, so uh, you kind of segued us at some point there, Double, as far as like mass adoption effectively. So we see that we're, you know, maybe on uh, the, the future of a, Bitcoin ETF approved in the United States and and Coinbase has involvement in that and I believe that you you've been involved in that as well, um, representing Coinbase. So where are we at today? And uh, what are we looking at with a BlackRock ETF, or not just BlackRock, but a whole, I don't know, seven or 10 other ETFs that are in uh, the process as
2: well? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a number of issuers who have put forward applications to the SEC to to launch a Bitcoin ETF. Coinbase has been selected um, as the custodian for a majority of these. And so we're, we're proud of that role that we could play.
0: So, so it's, sorry, it's not just with BlackRock ETF, you're the custodian for a few of them. For, for others as well. Okay, I didn't realize that.
2: Yeah, and so and, and but the BlackRock, I think, is kind of the headline name you see because they're one of the biggest asset managers in the world. And today in equity ETFs, they, they dominate this space. Um, they're, they're one of the biggest players. And so um, it's exciting to see that they're a part of the fray as well. Before any of this can go through, this does require SEC approval. The market has been very excited about this because there was a, a Court of Appeals case in D.C., Grayscale versus the SEC, and Grayscale won that case. And that case was about whether their application to have a Bitcoin ETF should go through or not. And the basis upon which the SEC rejected uh, uh, Grayscale's ETF application was that it's not appropriate for the SEC to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, but they could approve a futures-based Bitcoin ETF. And so what that means is uh, an ETF where the underlying asset is just Bitcoin versus a uh, ETF where the underlying asset are future contracts based on Bitcoin the SEC has approved the futures contracts and not the, not the spot contracts. And they've said that the spot contracts are too hard to manage in terms of manipulation, that there's too much potential fraud in the spot market. And what the Court of Appe- Appeals said is that that rationale, that reasoning that the SEC gave there is actually unlawful and it's arbitrary and capricious. That, that's the formal term that they used because there is an immense amount of correlation between the futures pricing and the spot pricing in Bitcoin. There's a 99.9% correlation in wow. the fact. And so if the SEC feels like it's appropriate and, and, and acceptable for a futures market to go through and it's not susceptible to fraud and that's why they approved it, that same rationale would have to hold through for the spot market as well. And so this case gets remanded back to the SEC. The file kind of goes back to the SEC and they're, they're not saying you have to approve this. What they're saying is that rationale you've given is not lawful. Um, and so now the market is starting to feel like there, in the perception, a lot of observers are feeling like that, like the SEC is perhaps in a corner now. By approving the futures-based ETFs, they might have to approve spot ETFs. It is far from guaranteed. Anything could happen. Um, but there are some important deadlines coming up. One of them is in January of 2024. Um, there's a there's a Bitcoin ETF application, uh, for which the final deadline is coming up in January. And the SEC has to make an action by that by that point in January. They have to approve it. They have to deny it but they can't delay it any further. So they have to make a call. And so the market is starting to feel like this is, this is gonna come in it. If it does come, um, that, that might lead to one of the more mass adoption events in the US market. And maybe even globally, because I mean, again, these are huge asset managers. Uh, you might see an influx of capital into these securities that are called ETFs and underlying them as Bitcoin. And as, as you get more demand for the securities, you have to have more Bitcoin underlying those assets, right? And so as there more and more Bitcoin adoption, you know, you would hope that that would lead to some progress in all of these issues that we're talking about as grandmothers and retirees and pensioners start to own this asset. And I think, and I think that's what Coinbase is most excited about. It's just the possibilities that this has to be a watershed moment.
0: Just to clarify one thing. So in January, they need to either approve or deny BlackRock's application or a, all of them?
2: Just there's this one particular application for which the final deadline is in January. The the way this works is that the ETF issuers submit an application and the SEC can delay and delay and delay. But there comes a point in which, under the regulations, they can't delay any further. So the final deadline for one particular application, ARC 21, is in January. BlackRock's application and a few others, the final deadline's closer to March or April. I mean, it's all publicly available. uh, But it's starting to feel like in Q1 of 2024, there might be something, there might be some, some big movements here
1: it 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 is interesting because in Canada there are bitcoin and ETFs already, already available by by various asset managers for, so, for like th- two or three years now am yeah, i right yeah, yeah about yeah that's right yeah and so it'd be interesting to even understand how the sec takes the position where you know just north of the border this has been approved already um well well do you have any insight on that
0: like why why have we been offering this and other countries around the world as far that's as right I understand. Domain. I think yes. Brazil has an ETF in Bitcoin, maybe some other places. Um, why Why did we approve this so long ago? Because there is an impression as a Canadian, I think, that we often follow the lead of the United States. But it seems like the theme of this conversation today is that's absolutely not the case at all. We haven't been following the lead of the United States. Um, the 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 idea that when the United States sneezes, Canada catches a cold or that we do what they say or things like that hasn't been the case. So why have we been so progressive? In this area, Um, do you have any insight into that?
1: I I think it might actually fall on the on the willingness of the regulators to consider sort of novel business proposals, right? And and you know, again, going back to 2017 when the first Bitcoin trust, just a traditional sort of trust structure investment fund, was like investing in Bitcoin. Um, and, but since then, the regulation has evolved and many of the expectations similar to trading platforms would be the same on funds that invest in these sort of underlying assets that are crypto assets. So again, custody requirements, ensuring that there are no other concerns, making sure that the custodian that actually holds the asset is a qualified custodian under securities laws, whether it's... You know, a foreign custodian that could be Coinbase or in Canada, there's one that's already been approved for actually dealing with crypto assets. So that's kind of led the way because now having a true crypto asset custodian approved in Canada helps the regulation push along. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether, I mean, getting the, the ear of the SEC to see you know, why have, have you paid attention to north of the border and, and why have you taken a different path?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll say about the Canadian market. I mean, um, it's not just that we have Bitcoin ETFs. I mean, there are now uh, ETH ETFs where the ETH is staked as a part of the ETF. Right. I mean, so it's not, it's not, it's like innovations upon innovations right. in, in my, in my, my perception, and we don't even have the basic Bitcoin ETF <laughs> in the U.S. yet. Right. So, and I, you know, I will say that. I mean, you know, we. You know, are, is, is the U.S. looking north of the border? Are they looking globally? I, I think, unfortunately, the answer is largely no. Yeah. Right. And, and I think and I think they're, they're going to go on their own path. But um, look, the SEC's hand might be forced here and that might lead the U.S. to, to catch up because that, that mass adoption is inevitably going to lead to to more and more folks focusing
0: on the space. That's great. I think this has been such an insightful conversation, Um, such good uh, information on the differences between the two countries from both of you, which is really helpful for us to understand, especially from kind of for myself as a Canadian to understand what's happening in the United States relative to what we're doing here in Canada. I really appreciate both of you being with me here today. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, guys. Thanks,
2: Jared.